Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. Welcome to this week's College Football Sprint. We are joined by the very popular and wise <laughs> Zach Smith. I don't know if either are true. I don't know if either are true. <laughs> I'm just going off the Twitter engagement, bro. <laughs> I'm just I'm just going off the fact that pretty much everything that Zach says about Ohio State, what Ohio State football needs to do, comes to pass every weekend. I'm, I'm oh, wondering yeah. if you've got the inside. Are you still on the coaching staff, man? <laughs> right. Like I sit in the meeting still. <laughs> <laughs> He's still got the Zoom link since they're all right. now. <laughs> I, I just watched the practice film. I see what they're doing. <laughs> man, so, you know, you could tell from the good moods that we had a good weekend. Oh, yeah. What a weekend. Yeah. What a game. What a game. What a game. It was amazing to see Ohio State put it all together for the first time this season. Oh, it was awesome. It was awesome to see kind of at full strength, finally hitting their stride at the right time. And then it was also awesome just to watch. I mean, what, I don't know how much people realize like the masterful coaching job that Ryan Day just did. And like, that was, that was watching a masterpiece. Like it was poetry on a football field, the way he, he just dismantled and, and uh, just tore down Brett Venables and everything he loves to do. It was just, it was amazing. I'm sitting here going, wow. Like people, have not been able to do this to Clemson and Brent Venables ever. And Ryan is just methodically doing it with so many different answers and ways. It was beautiful, man. It was beautiful. Can you it's, dig into that a little bit? I saw a comment on the huddles, how they huddled more to prevent some st- sign stealing. But can you get into a little bit more about what's happening on the coaching side? You know what? It was it was almost like a pitcher that was in his groove. You know what I mean? Like like he had a fastball, curveball, and a changeup, and and he was just going, just dialing them up perfectly. He would go up tempo with a formation to the sideline. Like he put three guys in the boundary, just which is a problematic formation to be in if you're blitzing like it's just Mm -hmm. it's hard to match because you're not used to it like your boundary d end has to go match receivers now where he's not used to that so he he just had a repertoire of of i guess ammunition to keep brent venables out of what he wanted to do and it was just poetic the way he was he would go huddle up couldn't steal signals then he would go no huddle tempo and then a couple times he did like a fake look back the whole Clemson team would look over and they'd snap the ball and Ohio State would just roll the front seven off the ball and you're just watching it like he owns him right now like he owned him on every front and it was awesome the other other thing that happened was Justin Fields very early made it clear that that if you blitzed him he was going to make you pay I mean he threw he was like 86 percent against pressure and so it was one of those, like, I don't know what he was supposed to do. You know, like he's used to creating chaos and all these and creating all these pressures and these things to to make it really hard on offenses. And they really just dismantled that, that option for him. And they didn't really have an answer. Zach, I mean, we talk about this all the time about how simple of a sport football is when you break it down and you do the basic things right. Right. Like yeah. Ohio State's biggest issue um, that we had been hindering on, harping on was their inability to establish a run game early. Once you establish the run, you're then able to run play action. And once you're able to run play action, it's essentially a free for all when you have a QB like Justin Fields. And that's, oh, yeah. that seems like exactly what happened in this game. We established the run, then we were able to pass off the run. And then the run pass option with Fields 
took off and it was just like, you know, those three basic things, if you do them right, your team is going to win. There's no doubt. And and they, they made smart decisions. Like Ryan made smart decisions. I even read uh, some, some guy, I don't know, some reporter that like thinks he's a, a football guru broke <laughs> down, like how, how Ohio state kept Brent Venables from doing what he wanted. And his whole point was like, they did so good on first and second down that they were in third and short, which is, if you look at it, like completely false and not at all what happened. Yeah. <laughs> they were in third, they were in third and long and extra long nine of 12 third downs. So it's just, wow. But, you know, that stuff goes, but here's what he did. Here, here's what Ryan did. He got in, so he, he was, they were in third and seven plus, right? Third and seven or longer, nine out of 12 times. But they ran the ball five times in that situation. Yeah. They just handed off to Trey Sermon on stretch. And yeah. what happens is th- those are zone plays that are great against blitz. So then Venables doesn't want to call blitzes because he's like, oh, they could just hand off zone. And he, we popped a couple. Trey Sermon got 13 yards on third and 11. Like he was doing things. It's like, well, that's not traditional. Usually you drop back if it's third and 10. No, Ryan's like, no, I'll just run QB draw or just hand it off to Trey Sermon and punt if I have to. It was just so calculated and just brilliant by him. I think what was cool too, you know, to the point of what you've been saying all season, Zach, it was cool to see the tight ends get involved to the no extent doubt. that they did. I mean, they balled out, and I I'm a, I was watching that first catch where Fields just zipped it in right into the pocket in like yep. the one foot you could possibly throw that ball. And was, homeboy snagged it. Was that Rucker? Yeah, no, no, that, no, was, that was Carroll. That was Carroll. And, and that was, yeah. I think that was the most impressive play of the night because that, so that was a, a corner. He was running a corner route against outside leverage man, and they were so well coached that he ran the corner route. And if you had, if you don't have leverage, you snap it off into like a little curl and then fields, put it right on his inside shoulder. It was just like so well executed. You're sitting here like, yeah. man, this team is just there. They're playing at a really high level right now. And that, that was, was the kind of throw that, you know, historically, I remember that we, we might not have come down with it. And it just yeah. goes to show the the hands on that side of the ball and, you know, the quality of throwing that was happening. Absolutely. Well, you know, my biggest thing leading into the game was they needed another option. Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, you can't just ride a two-horse race the whole time. And then they come out 130 yards receiving and three touchdowns between the two tight ends and Trey Sermon. And it's like, now we're talking about a multiple offense. Like, you're talking about multiple threats that are being employed I mean, really well. I mean, what, yeah. what we saw Saturday is what we needed to see, and now it's going to take every single one of them against yeah. Bama. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, this is what we've been waiting for all season, right? No it's doubt. like use all of your talent. You've got superstar talent all over the field. Make them fear all of it, and that's what we did in this game. And actually, you mentioned Bama. It's like our offense looked a lot like what Bama's offense looked, yeah. it looked like all season. They established the run. Um, and then they are able to pass to their weapons on the outside, and they utilize they utilize Devonte Smith. And then once they 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 adjust to that, they go to their other guys, and that's exactly what we did. So I think, you know, we 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 played our most complete game of the season at the most important time, and I think we showed a lot of people what a why Ohio State was put in this playoff. There's no doubt, and just I mean. I, I, the appreciation that everyone should have for that second quarter is just like, I mean, Ohio State had the ball for, I think, 12 of the 15 minutes in the second quarter. They scored three touchdowns. Clemson had really two and a half drives and didn't get a point. And it was just like the whole quarter, you're watching it like this is, you can't do better than this. Yeah. No, you can't. No, it was, it was just unbelievable, especially as a fan, to see all of the things that I was worried about just, you know, vanish, the team come together. And I mean, it's just, there's these moments, right? It's it's what makes me passionate about sports. There's these moments where everything comes together and 
whether you're a fan, whether you're on a team, whether you have any involvement, it it just shows you what can be. And I think that's yeah. like the most inspiring thing you could watch. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Man, that was, I'm lit, guys. I'm lit. <laughs> I'm so excited about let, Alabama, let's, too. Let, let, let's, let's talk about Justin Fields for a moment. You know, there are a lot of individual players that I think stood out, but let's let's start there with Justin Fields. Um, came into this game with a little bit of hate thrown his way after the after the Northwestern game um, and his performance there, which he himself admitted was one of his worst per- performances as a quarterback. What did he show in this game to an NFL scout or an NFL GM? making a decision on, hey, is this guy going to be my franchise QB or is, does he still need yeah. some work? I mean, he, he showed a lot. I, um, I, th- I think what's it's kind of recency bias it catches you, right? Like he didn't play yeah. well in, in two games this year, but people forget how well he played last year against really good opponents. So yeah. it's not like, I don't know why people like forgot that like he wasn't still capable of that, but it was really important on that stage against Trevor Lawrence to kind of make a case that like, I don't know if he's going to get drafted above him, but he belongs in the room. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he did. He was ridiculous. 20, 91% adjusted completion percentage. He was had a 93% grade on pro football focus. He They blitzed him. He was 86% when they blitzed him. Like anything you could ask. I always look at blitz. Like how well do you do during against blitz, right? That's when it's a little chaos. You're under pressure. Like you need to get the ball out. He was phenomenal, almost 90%. And then the other thing I look at is throws over 10 yards, right? The further throws, they're obviously harder to hit, right? He was 77% over 10 yards. So it's like he was dominant. He was, I think, at four of seven on deep balls, which is, you know, it's not – crazy but it's really good and and yeah. six touchdowns he had an nfl passer rating of 144 like just dominant he was dominant yeah and yeah. let's talk about the injury too because i mean oh yeah coming back from that just watching him get hurt come off the field you know come back on zip the ball in for a quick touchdown and just limp his ass off i was just like what what is how do you even pull that together i it, this is the you know the the hot take of the day for me, but I think it was the greatest performance by an Ohio state quarterback we've ever seen. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's fair. That's fair. And he's, he showed that resiliency and toughness that you saw it last year against Michigan. He got knocked out of the game, came back in a couple plays later, first play back scrambles and throws a long touchdown to Chris Olave. Like I think it was Olave, maybe Garrett Wilson, but either way, like he's shown that he has that. And when you look at NFL quarterbacks, like it's so much more than, than throwing form and you know, how strong their arms are. Like those intangibles are huge. And that toughness factor that he showed again, I mean, that was a vicious hit now. Yeah. And I'm sitting here, I, I live streamed on YouTube during the game, and I, I'm I think I can't monetize the video because of the language that came out of my mouth after that hit. I'm like, this kid needs to be thrown out of the game. He's got a yeah. targeting last year in the playoffs. Yeah. This time he spears somebody, like he's gonna break his own neck. But that was a vicious hit to the ribs. Vicious. Yeah. yeah. And you you know, uh, V sent me an article, I, I think something we need to talk about about him uh fields not actually getting a diagnosis when he went into the medical tent just just some painkillers and some shots but dude i mean those kind of hits to get back to have mobility and to be able to continue the game where you know, clearly he couldn't even move his legs properly for the first first you know several yeah. minutes after he got back in i mean that was heroic in general and then to add in the amount of zip he was able to get on the ball through the whole second half of the game especially some of those long balls he threw that were just so perfectly placed. It's just, it's yeah. crazy when the, 
the part of your body that you need to throw is injured and you're still able to do it. Yeah, and, it showed a lot. And it's it's also shows the the motivation factor for both him and Chris Olave. Like when you see this is what motivated those two guys all off season. Oh, for sure. You yeah. know, and uh, to see both of them perform as brilliantly as they did in in this payback game of sorts and actually and also Ryan Day, all of the things that you could have asked for in terms of payback happened. You know, but I wanted to also switch gears a little bit and talk about more on the offensive side of the ball. Um, Trey Sermon is doing his best Ezekiel Elliott 2015 impersonation. It seems like um, this guy, man, I'm telling you, we've we've been spoiled by running backs at Ohio State for oh, yeah. decades and decades and decades. But what we're seeing from this kid, like in terms of everything that you look for in a running back, the aggression he's running with, the vision that he's showing, his hands, his breaking tackles. It's like this is some of the best running back play we've ever seen, and that's saying a lot yeah, at Ohio State. Um, what do you think has, has led to kind of the uptick in his performance? I think it's a number of things. One, he's, you know, you finally running with confidence coming off that knee injury, you know, early in the year, albeit he wasn't playing. I mean, he was splitting time, so he never really got into a groove. Now he's not splitting time. So it's just his show. He can kind of get into getting, get in the flow of things kind of, you know, running backs sometimes they need to get hit a couple times. They need to, you know, get a couple three, four yard runs before, as they kind of get their legs loose and open it up. But I think that's the biggest thing. One, he's got the opportunity. He's getting the carries. He's getting the time where he can really get in the flow of a game. And then also, he's running different. I mean, this is not all like some indictment on Tony Alford. Like, he should have been playing the whole time. No, he looks better, too, yeah. right? Like, he looks like he's running more confidently. He kind of has his swagger back. I mean, he had created 11 missed tackles by himself <laughs> in the game on Friday. And it's like, this kid is what people thought he could be. When you watch this Oklahoma highlights before he got hurt, like, this is what you expected, and it just took a minute to get there, but he's here. I'd love watching him jump people, too. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm going to be honest. That stuff's got to go. These kids are going to get hurt, man. One kid stands up, and you can never have a kid. Yeah. <laughs> we're also seeing, we're also seeing um, significantly improved offensive line play um, this year as well. What, what would you say that is the result of? Because we also dealt with some injuries on the offensive line, but kids came in. Kids came in there and 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 didn't skip a beat and performed admirably. Yeah, I mean, they're they're you, the first. This is the first time where where Greg Sadrawa finally has a deep group. I mean, it took him a while to recruit, you know, a deep group because there were so many misses along the offensive line by Ed Warner in recruiting and development and everything. So he finally has a deep enough group where that sixth, seventh guy in. I mean, you saw Paris Johnson go in and get a pancake block, and you're like, this kid, this kid's not playing yet, like. <laughs> It looks freaking ridiculous, but I think the biggest thing is like the interior O line's just been okay for me. Um, yeah. I love Wyatt, but outside of that, it's been, they've had a lot of struggles. But the tackles, their Mumford and Nick Petit Friere are playing so good. They didn't let allow one single pressure in a playoff game against Clemson. Like neither of them. When yeah. you have two bookend tackles like that, everything looks good. And that's in the past. The past game, the the, the O line and the run game is. I mean, they've been stupid all year just road grading people just moving i mean the line of scrimmage moves four yards on the snap of the ball when they just run stretch they just run zone it's yeah, just one thing um the commentators made note of that i wanted to ask you about zach was when uh they were doing a lot of the blocking patterns for uh for trey um they mentioned that clemson was doing a lot of guessing to try and guess which way because these are uh, um uh read runs right so yeah yeah 
all the line will shift one way with the block. Um, why would a defensive line want to guess as opposed to react? Well, I mean, I think it, it goes even to to a deep philosophy issue that Brent Venables has always had. And I've always said it doesn't make sense why he is able to get away with what he does, which is just it's sheer chaos. Like they don't really have an identity and that should be problematic, but it never has been. So who am I? Who am I to say he's an idiot? Right. Because it's been like one of the best defenses in the country. But if you face a great run game like that and you have guys that maybe aren't experts at their technique at the defense they, they, they you know it's like a jack jack of all ace of none where now guys are kind of peeking they're jumping out of gaps and that's part of their philosophy but it's problematic because then you have a, a, a an open gap and a, a good back and a good run game is going to exploit that so, so i think that high risk high reward called. essentially yeah right and they get away with it a lot because it's just so much chaos yeah, we i've always said in coaching it's really hard on offense because if one guy screws up the play is dead on defense, a guy could screw up and fall into the play. Like a guy hits the wrong gap and he's not supposed to be there and you don't have a guy to block him because he's not supposed to be there. Like yeah. it's just way easier on defense to have chaos and have success. And yeah. unfortunately, they for them, <laughs> it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it seems like pretty much as flawless of a performance on that side of the field as as you could expect in a game against a powerhouse like Clemson. It, it seemed like we were pretty much if not perfect, 99% efficient on really the good. offensive side of the ball. Uh, really good. Game. Credit to Ryan Day, credit to the players, credit to the entire coaching staff on that side. Now let's flip the field a little bit. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the defensive side of the ball. Obviously, you've been talking about the interior of our defensive line, our our big uh, Polynesian <laughs> guys that that just dominate. Oh, they're so good. <laughs> <laughs> they they were probably the biggest dominant force in this game that everything was able to play off of. They started out getting a lot of pressure on the inside, making Trevor Lawrence's life very uncomfortable um, throughout the game. And I think as a result of that, also the rest of our defense in our front seven also showed up to play. That was one of the better performances overall from all of our linebackers um, as well. But our front seven seemed to really take this game personally and stand up. Yeah, they did. And you know, you know what we saw for the first time was some edge pressure. I mean, and, and Jonathan Cooper has been really good all year, but he he hasn't flashed as some dominant pass rusher, but Tyreek Smith and, 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 yeah. and Jonathan Cooper showed up. I mean, they had 10 QB pressures between the two of them. And so I think that was the difference. We still got the dominant interior play, but the edge showed up. Yeah, and then yeah. I really had three keys to victory in this game that I talked about on my show, and all three were like home runs. The first one was just studying Trevor Lawrence. You have to contain Trevor Lawrence and pressure him, which is a really hard thing to do, right? To actually get pressure on him but not give him escape lanes. Like, that's really hard to do. And what they did was just – it was phenomenal. They got pressure with those front four. He had minus eight yards rushing. They pressured him 21 times. And lo and behold, his production went from 76% completion when he wasn't under pressure to 45%. So mm -hmm. they, they basically – they were kryptonite for Trevor Lawrence. And then you, you take away Travis Etienne, who got averaged, I think, three yards a carry and really didn't do much in the throw game. Yeah. Amari Rogers was their home run, home run hitter. He didn't have one target over 10 yards. So it's like you sit here and you're like, check, check, check. Like just completely took away the identity of that Clemson offense. Yeah. Wow. You know what? One thing that stood out to me was, and I think they mentioned it in the game, but it was Sean Wade who, you know, we felt was adapting to this new role that he's had in, in the offense um, or in the defense. I mean, and one of the plays that was impressive to me that they highlighted 
you know, it was actually after a mistake that he had made where he he gave a ton of cushion on yeah. his uh, on his guy and let him catch the ball. He was able to leverage that cushion to keep him short of the first down line at a critical uh, oh, yeah. play for Clemson. Um, what did you think of Sean Wade and especially, you know, a lot of these guys who through the season have been, you know, pretty on and off in terms of really being able to fit into those roles? Uh, you know, I, it wasn't his best game. I mean, he, he, he made some plays. He did some things like you're talking about, but ultimately you, you get targeted 12 times. It was, it was obvious that Clemson wanted to go after him. And I mean, 10 catches on 12 targets, 143 yards and two touchdowns. That's, it's never a good day when you're one of your corners is one of your leading tacklers. That's never a good day, but he, he, he was also facing a different skill set than they've seen. That kid Cornell Powell is really good and he hasn't, he hasn't shown up like he did on Friday all year, but I recruited him. I know how talented he is. And so I, I thought Sean played okay. Um, he certainly is still, I guess, trying to adjust to this defense. Um, and, and you saw him in press man get beat a couple times. You saw him in zone play it really well, which has not been his strong suit. He's been more of a press corner. And, and so I saw improvement, but uh, he, we're going to need way better from Sean to take care of Devontae Smith on Monday. I mean, way better. He's got to be a first th- – that lottery pick, that first-round corner that comes in and takes takes away a receiver. He's gonna, We're going to be yeah. facing one. Patrick Sertain at Alabama is the best corner in the country, and Sean Wade should be in that conversation. So he's got to play like it. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you, we've, we've talked about this at length. It seems like Sean is – having difficulty adjusting let's just be honest about this to being the number one outside corner he he played really really well phenomenal level on the nickel you know i personally see him more as like a a a pro bowl safety than he is an outside corner personally you know but i mean he is our best best player at that position to see him targeted like that showed me that clemson wasn't scared of him yeah. You know, and, and, you know, he's going into this draft, you know, that we're, we're, we're big fans of his, but it seems like he's a little tentative. It seems like that trail technique is kind of a result of his nervousness a little bit. Um, it's, it's what, what, what does he need to do to really master this outside position? Because we want to see him thrive and succeed. Is, is this the position for him? Uh, you know, I think it is. I, I, I think, you know, maybe not long term in the NFL. I don't I don't know that. But he certainly has the skill set to do it at this level. And he could do it in the NFL, too. I think the biggest thing that he needs to get back is that dog. I mean, he was a dog in the yeah. slot. Like he had a swagger and a mentality. Every play, press man, blitzing didn't matter. And I think part of the the switch outside and the more tentative, softer zone coverage stuff, the bail stuff, it's kind of taken away his dog. Yeah. And, and and I, he's got it in him. I know the kid really well. Yeah. It's in there. He just has got to bring it back out. And I think it comes with confidence. And so this is going to be a huge week for him to bounce back off of that. You know, let's we'll call it a, an average performance against Clemson to bounce back to come. He's got to know this is his this is his money game. I mean, he's going to play the Heisman Trophy winner and have to cover him. And if he shows up, you're talking millions of dollars made yeah. in one day. Yeah. So yeah. I, th- I think it'll happen. I think you'll see a different player on Monday than you saw on Friday. And I'm, and I'm excited for it because I love that kid. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's definitely a dog. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's tough to see his struggles because we know he's one of the most talented players oh, in yeah. the country by far. No Man. doubt. Love it. So before we get too deep into Alabama, did you guys have any other comments you want to make about Ohio State Clemson? Otherwise, we'll, we'll move through our agenda. No, it was great. Yes, we slayed the dragon, man. That's that's 
First time ever. <laughs> feel good. My God. <laughs> it's over with. No more Clemson. We can't be Clemson talk. So the team that almost slayed the dragon, Cincinnati, that was tough to watch, man. Tough. The mismanagement, you know, by their, their I guess, their clock management and their offensive staff towards the end of the game. But you know what? The, the one thing they did was they showed they belong in the conversation. Because that's yep. a good Georgia team. It's not a great Georgia team, but it's a good Georgia team. Yep. And they showed that they can play with them. And so I, as the game was kind of ticking down, I sat there and said, you know what? This is a win for Cincinnati, even if it's not. I know they wanted to win. They would have rather won. But they showed they can go toe-to-toe with whatever, the second-best team in the SEC East. That yep. says something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah win definitely would have would have changed the headlines, per se, and then also the way that the game was managed was a tough – they should have – they had that game won if they would have – just run the ball on third and two. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and it's tough because, you know, on one hand, you understand when you're trying to make a statement, statement win. Sometimes you take statement win risks, yeah. like going for that big play. And so you understand when you're Cincinnati, like, we don't want to give them even a shot here. Yeah. Um, but, Run the ball, <laughs> but you know what? It's shoot. We did it against Alabama in 2014. We took a shot on on a first or second down to Evan Spencer, and it completely set us behind the clock and gave Alabama the ball back with a chance to tie it up. Yeah. And it all happened because these teams they just full fledged sell out to stop the run. And you sit there as a coach and you're like, ah, this is dangerous. But if we hit it, like this is all they're giving us, right? We can't run the ball because they're just committing a hundred people to the run. So it's tough. I get it. I've been there. Shoot, we made the mistake and gave Alabama the ball back, which was luckily worked out, but uh, it didn't work out for Cincinnati. It was a phenomenal play by the defender there too. He was oh, yeah. covering someone else and he, he saw the play happening. I mean, it was, a, it was an unbelievable, incredible play by that young man. For yeah. sure. Seriously. Man, so um, let's move on to uh, Texas. Saw some group texts exchanged about Mr. <laughs> Herman. How do you feel about that, Zach? You know what? It's uh, it, I, I'm really happy for Longhorn Nation. I'm happy that they got a uh, Steve Sarkeesian. I think he's going to do a great job. They deserve it. Um, it, it. What an embarrassment to their their alumni, their fans, and and anyone that's ever played there. That debauchery that was that head coaching tenure. So I, I I'm that's I'm most happy that I I can stop talking negatively about Texas now because it's over. Like I I, I have so much respect for Texas. And they deserve to have a great program. And I'm just glad that I can shut up about Texas and maybe even root for them. <laughs> Man, I love that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, their handling of it obviously didn't make a lot of sense, you know, and it kind of shows. You, you, They gave the guy a, <laughs> a vote of confidence two weeks ago. And then pretty much overnight, they, they, they fired him, right? Which, yeah. again, and then had no issue this is where my issue always comes into this and you guys know this well enough is the the the, the fake show that we have going on here it's like texas i'm just gonna the financials here they first of all they cut a lot of their staff they furloughed a lot of athletic department workers saying they didn't have the money to pay them in this 25 million that you're about to pay tom herman i would hope that these boosters come up with one to two million to bring all these people back to work. That's pretty much where I'll I'll, I'll fall on this. Is is if you have the twenty, if you're in all this budget crisis, you found the twenty five million to get rid of this guy and whatever the five or six million it's going to cost to hire St- Sarkeesian and his staff. Take care of these little people out here who you 
you just told you don't have the money to pay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it is? It's, it's all about what do you want to do with your money? There's nothing sexy about asking an oil tycoon to donate millions of dollars to save an accountant's job. Yeah. Now, you tell him you want to get rid of the head coach to get a better one and win a national championship, that checkbook flies open. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I hate to put it this way, but it's easier for these companies or for these groups to get, you know, a PPP loan to pay those those folks or whatever assistance they can get and raise their money for their coach than it is to actually, like, you know, take care of your people. No doubt. And it's like, it's one of those things. It's, it's, it's supply and demand. It's the market, right? I mean, yeah. it's really easy to find another accountant. It's really hard to find a head coach that can win a national title. Like, so it's all about priorities. And you know, the, you know, everyone knows that this is the priorities that are in athletic departments. It just is yeah. what it is. It is yeah. what it is. It is what it is. So talking it, about priorities and maybe somebody with the wrong priorities, I just, I have to jump to this one. How the heck does Harbaugh get extended? He hasn't signed it yet, by the way. He hasn't signed it yet? He might get an NFL job. This is That's what's even more. I, I was just going to say, that's what's more shocking. I don't even believe that. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre thing. Now, I, I did a, a while back, Colin Cowherd did a segment on it. I think we might have even talked about it on the show. Yeah. Just like, has Harbaugh been a failure or are our expectations of the Michigan job way inflated? And it's like, he's done just about as well as anyone has. Bo Schembechler on through. So like, we all know he's there not to Ohio State's level, that he's not performed like Urban or Ryan Day, but they're looking at it like, can we get better? Like, can we get a better coach right now? And obviously they think no. And now the NFL courting him is a whole nother conversation. I just don't understand it at all, but that's the NFL for you. I guess the NFL is like, well, he wouldn't have to recruit. So, <laughs> right. So he could be weird. <laughs> I mean, the fact that they extended him and he didn't sign immediately on the dotted line is also very, very interesting in terms of what he thinks about himself. And, and his- I would, res- oh, if I was the AD, I would rescind that offer so fast. Like, oh, you don't want to sign it? All right, give it back. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting the contrast between these two programs, right? Texas yeah. and Michigan, they're very similar programs. Texas isn't, they're a good program, but they're not like a, a, a they don't compete for national championships. I mean, with Mac Brown and Vince Young, that was a standout year, but they usually are the same conversation, eight, nine, 10 win program, right? And mm-hmm. the difference between what Texas did and what Michigan is doing, where Mi- Texas is like, it's not good enough. We have to try to get into that next tier. And Michigan's like, you know what? This is good enough. It's bringing in millions of dollars a year. If we, if we make decent bowl games, you know, we, we're going to wave the white flag. We're not as good as Ohio State, but, you know, we can, we can, we can compete and play in decent and bring in the money. It seems like the contrast there is so interesting. You know, business. Yeah, I think it's just different expectations. I mean, Texas is, you're right, they, they have never been a national contender, you know, consistently, but you look at it and you're like, yeah, but they should be, yeah. right? I mean, their recruiting base is stupid. Like yeah. their financials, stupid. We just saw it. I mean, in the midst of a pandemic, they just shelled out $15 million or whatever. Like yeah. there's no reason they're not. Now, Michigan, I can tell you 10 reasons why that's a tough job, way harder than Texas. But you really look at like Notre Dame. What's the difference between Notre Dame and Michigan, right? Strong yeah. academic schools in the Midwest, not, not easy to travel to, not easy to get kids from Florida to come. You know, it, it's similar narratives, but Notre Dame just has committed to, I guess, 
be on that national stage, although they fall on their face, but still they want to be there, right? <laughs> well, well, I mean, look, that's surprising to me though, right? How How is Notre Dame able to do it, but Michigan cannot? You know, I, 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 I think it's just the staffs. I mean, I've saw Notre Dame on the road recruiting way more often than I saw Michigan. It just is what it is. Like, and you're talking about national recruiting. I mean, try harder, essentially. I just think they have a better philosophy and and they have a bigger brand nationally. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, they both kind of surprised me because I don't think either does a great job recruiting to that level that they want to be at, right? Like Notre Dame doesn't battle Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama on recruits very often. And neither does Michigan ever, really, unless it's a kid from Detroit or, or Ohio. Um, so I, I think they just, they're not operating like those top four teams. And that's why they're not performing like those top four teams. Like it's, it's not hard, right? <laughs> there's, there's, a, there are tiers. There's a tier, clear tier one, which is Clemson, Alabama, Ohio state, yeah. and everybody else kind of falls somewhere after that. And, you know, Notre Dame has obviously taken a beating in the press about how they don't belong. But when you look at that second tier of talent. You know, and I, you know, I'm not a big Brian Kelly fan. I don't like no. what he did at Cincinnati or his personality, but I do admire kind of how he's built that program where he's focusing on the offensive and defensive lines. He's like, all right, we may not get all the skill position guys, but we're going to have solid, solid defensive line, solid offensive line. They're producing NFL level talent yeah. in that next year. Yeah, they're not in the in the conversation with Bama and Ohio State. But you know that's what you should expect from Michigan and Texas at least, and they're not they're not living up to those standards, and Notre Dame is. You know? Yeah, and and I just I really look at it. It's a personnel based world, right? In every every industry and college football probably as much or more than anything. And you look at there's a couple other programs like Florida, Oklahoma, Georgia, where yeah. they are in there, right? You go recruit the best corner in the country, you are recruiting against them. Yeah, you're not recruiting against Notre Dame or Michigan. No, so it's not. like. I get it. Oklahoma hasn't, you know, put themselves on that stage with with uh, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and, and Florida certainly hasn't yet. But they're tr- they're trying. That's my thing. Like, what what is going on in Notre Dame, Michigan? Like, are they not trying to get a, get to that level, or they just can't? They don't have the personnel uh, on the coaching staff to go recruit. You think, their kids. Do you 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 know Brian Kelly? Well, it seems to me like they get some of these. Like, you look at Claypool in the NFL and some of these receivers that go to the NFL. It seems like they get some of this talent, but they don't develop those skill possessions very well. Yeah, and I, th- I think what you really have seen is a, a, an era of average quarterback play. I mean, what who is a, has been a dominant or, or even a above good quarterback at Notre Dame in the last fifteen years? Nobody. Yeah, I don't, nobody. Yeah, and so you get a guy like Chase Claypool. Uh, Michael Floyd was one. What's uh, there's a couple other ones. Uh, Golden Tate. Some of these guys, and and they have good careers, but you don't have an elite quarterback, and you don't have another guy, right? You don't have three guys or four guys. Now, what they have had is dominant tight ends. They've had some silly tight ends, and they yeah. they have two right now that I love too. Yeah, but it's, they they haven't been loaded at skill, and they don't have a quarterback to throw it to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough, man. You know, well, if anybody just kind of round this back up, if anybody. You know, is looking for another coach at Michigan if Harbaugh doesn't sign. I heard Tom Herman is looking for them. <laughs> that would be, oh my gosh, that would be phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he's going to land another job, a major job? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, he'll probably be at Alabama. If 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 nothing <laughs> else, he'll be as a an analyst or, you know, that's that's right, Steve Sarkeesian. Too. I mean, look at Steve Sarkeesian. Steve Sarkeesian was the head coach at Washington at USC. Was getting all drunk, you know 
hitting on reporters, trying to take him back to his hotel room at Pac-12 Media Days, like just some degenerate stuff. He goes to the Saban School of Head Coaches, and now some bitch lands the Texas job. Like anybody can bounce back if you go through Saban's coaching college. Yeah, it seems like he, he definitely needs some humble pie. What was interesting? <laughs> Did he ever release a statement? I I was waiting for his announcement or statement. Did yeah, he he released some little written statement that was like two sentences. Yeah. It, was, it was nothing, a big nothing burger. <laughs> yeah, if he wasn't if he wasn't such an ass, you'd almost feel sorry for the guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, rumors spreading: uh, Urban Meyer to the Jaguars. Is this going to happen? You know what? I, he put a he put a price tag out there, twelve mil, and he said About he'd come. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I I don't think so. Um, Does he live down there? Does he live in Florida? No, he he lives in Columbus still. He has a beach or not a beach, a lake house in Gainesville, just outside of Gainesville. So, I mean, they love the state of Florida. The only thing that make me inclined to say that it could happen is is I know his wife loves the South, loves the warm weather. This cold stuff isn't really her bag of tea. Um, but I I just don't see it. I don't see the marriage. I don't see the fit. I don't see how he – I mean, he's a really obviously a really smart coach and a really, really good football coach. So he maybe he would find a way to reinvent himself and transform into an NFL-style coach. But I've never seen that ever one time out of him. I mean, I think I was with him 11 years, and I never once saw something where I was like, oh, that could translate. Like, he's so good at developing young kids, 18, 19, 20. You got to go – into an NFL locker room with a 26 year old with three kids and a grown ass man. Like it's just different. Your motivational tactics, like your messages, everything's different. And I, I don't, I just don't see it. Do you think, and I agree with you, but I do think Jacksonville or a market like Jacksonville presents an interesting opportunity, right? It's not a big media market. The guys that go down there. Yeah, they are celebrities, but there aren't as many distractions uh, yeah. around them. So buying into somebody who's as intense as Urban Meyer, at least for a few years, right? Um, to kind of, you know, springboard that that team back into relevance. It might work, you know? Maybe that's what they need is someone like him who's a hard driver, who's going to change the culture. And it also comes down to if they draft a guy like Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields, that's going to present an <laughs> interesting decision for him. Right. <laughs> Obviously, um, between with Buckeye Nation, but Perhaps guys, both of those guys are guys who will buy into a coach's philosophy and be the leader that you need them to be. You know, I, I agree. It's tough for a guy like Urban, who's as intense as he is, to go in and coach pros. But maybe a place like Jacksonville might be the place. Yeah, I, it's, it's going to be about it's going to be what his career has always been about. What type of staff does he hire? Like if he has a great staff, he's phenomenal. If he doesn't have a great staff, he's not very good. It's like anyone else, right? So if he gets the NFL experience on his staff that can help him navigate those really uncharted waters for himself professionally, I think he he's smart enough, like he's good enough, but it's just, it's an interesting, it's like an odd marriage. Yeah. And the owner came out today and said, we haven't spoken to him yet. <laughs> I love when they say that, like you don't ever speak to him. You speak to agents and then all of a sudden they sign a contract. Like we, yeah. oh, we have not talked to him yet. Yeah. Like no kidding. Have you talked to Trace Armstrong? Tell us that. Answer that question. Yeah. And it seems like the 12 million price tag is fair. If they're going to pay Matt rule who hasn't won anything at the college level, 9 million a year. Oh, yeah. Why would you not go for the 12 million a year? You know? We're, we are it's, it's compelling yeah i i think i mean they'll pay it I, someone will pay that price tag soon enough and so 
if it's to get Urban Meyer, why wouldn't you? I just don't see him. If he's going to come back to coaching, it's got to be at a different level than college because I don't see him coming in and com- Ohio State. He left his legacy there. He loves this the program. I don't see him going to USC or someone else and kind of going toe to toe with Ohio State. Like it seems like he's left everything that he's needed to leave at the college level. He doesn't. He doesn't need to prove anything else. If he comes back, he's. It's got to be the NFL level, but it comes down to like what you said: is his personality going to fit at that level? Yeah. We mm. might. Get, we might get to find out. <laughs> we shall see. And you know, it's always it's interesting to see people take on those new challenges. I always I always find it to be you know the evolution of a person, right? Especially from college to pro, you know, whatever the situation. I mean, it's interesting to see what skills translate. I think there's so much that is not known by the public about, you know, whether it's, you know, what personality traits of a skill uh, of a coach, right? Like what are the, th- the natural things that a person brings to the table that, you know, they might not actually have recognized are like the skills that have made them successful, right? Like if you ask most people who are successful, what made them successful, they'll focus on skills that they, they put work into, but oftentimes mm-hmm. that's not the reason they're successful. And so it's always right. interesting to me to see people who are really successful in one thing switch to another, because it's really a test of, their own self-awareness of what makes them great. And you're, you're obviously, and you're seeing it with what he's doing, how he's improved as a college football analyst. I think he just, yeah. To Zach show every week and takes all of his information, (laughs) but (laughs) feels like it, (laughs) (laughs) but you can also tell, I mean, Zach, you know, when he's on that show though, you can tell he's like, what am I doing here with these average intelligence <laughs> idiots? But you know what? If you go back and look, to your point, like I'll never forget. I, I can't remember. Maybe it was 2012 or it might have been at Florida. Anyways, the first time he was on TV, he was at, he like was uh, on set for the national championship game. I know he did it 2012. It might have been before that, but he was so awkward and awful. Yeah. But was. like, and now you watch him and he, you're like, He's the most he's the most entertaining guy on as that is an analyst. So it's just, yeah. to your point, like he's he's gotten so much better and adapted so much that now it's like there's none better. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Totally. But to your point, V, there are many, many times during those broadcasts where I can tell that he's like, Wow, nobody around me can see <laughs> no. this the way that I do. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. <laughs> Oh man, I love that. I mean, when you're dealing with, when you when you've got Brady Quinn and Matt Leinart and uh, and and former players on there, he you can tell he has a really tough time on there with with when he gets deep into his anal- analytics mode. <laughs> oh yeah, there's no doubt. So uh, let's uh, let's kind of just toss out the uh, you know NFL drafts coming up, Fields, Trevor Lawrence. Where are we leaning on that? I mean, I think Trevor, Trevor Lawrence is going to be the number one overall pick. Um, Do you think I he'll just, pan out? He's really good. He's really, <laughs> he's really good. good. He's, um, really, he's really good. He's really good. He's just he's such an arm talent. He's athletic. He can run. He's long as hell. He's got a strong arm. I mean, he's got everything the NFL looks for. I, I don't. I mean, I, I think there's honestly still question marks about Justin Fields. Can he translate to the NFL? And Trevor Lawrence has less questions. I think they're both similarly talented, but Trevor has answered more questions in his career than Justin has. And honestly, that Ohio State game, to me, like a lot of people were like, oh, Trevor, I thought he played it. Considering the circumstances and how well our defense was playing, like that's as 
good of a bad effort as you're going to see from a quarterback, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Like the guy did still made very minimal mistakes, still hung in the pocket, still showed why he, everyone is as high as they are on him. Like, I don't, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, Hey, Trevor Lawrence doesn't deserve to be the number. This might be a case of one a and one B, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you know how it is. There's so much goes into the the postseason process, the individual workouts, the meetings, the the times where they sit down and watch film. Like it, it's going to really come down to how well Justin Fields presents himself, how well Trevor Lawrence does in his in his interviews and one on one workouts. And the combine's not as big a deal, but if Justin Fields goes and pops a four three, that's going to open some freaking eyes. Oh yeah. So yeah. it. There's so much left to happen that it's impossible to even predict right now. But I think at this phase, that's kind of where where he's at and, and where Trevor's at. One thing I will say, and I don't know if you guys agree with this, I think what we're seeing from Justin Fields is pretty much what he started a season and a half worth of games so far in his career. Like when you look at a guy's quote unquote ceiling, like I have not seen a guy that's as good at both phase, when they say dual threat QB, yeah, who's as good at both as yeah. this guy is, extremely accurate, mm-hmm. can make all the throws, but also can run. So in terms of ceiling, I think I, in terms of, and also based on how many games he's actually had, it's very enticing. Like if you're looking at who has the higher ceiling, maybe it is Justin Fields. You know, I haven't seen anything like it. Yeah, I think definitely he he has the higher ceiling. It's a it's a matter of can he reach it. Now the good thing is he's been trained by one of the best quarterback coaches in the country, in Ryan Day. Really, I mean we can credit Corey Dennis if we want to. Um, certainly he's played a big part in that. But I mean Ryan Day is is well respected in that world. And, and the only person I've seen that I think could have been better, but he had a clown as a coach and then got hurt was Braxton Miller. I mean Braxton was. Yeah. He, had, he he could do everything that Justin Fields did. He was just more dynamic. And he just, he never got, I mean, he, he got coached and developed, but then he got hurt and it was, you know, yeah. we can argue about nothing all day long. He couldn't play the position anymore, but he, he was the guy to me that, I mean, it was Mike Vick 2.0. I mean, just stupid, explosive game changer that could throw the ball really well. Yeah. 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 I mean, now we have Mike Vick 2.0, by the way, Lamar Jackson. Right. NFL. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's uh let's talk about Alabama. Oh, oh what do you want to talk about? <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure how I feel going into this game. I let's think- talk about Clemson some more. Can we talk about the Clemson? <laughs> it's a scary one because Alabama is just so freaking consistent, so put yeah. together year after year. This year, you know, I I definitely think after the show against Clemson, if we play that well, you know, there's a chance. But oh, absolutely, no doubt about it. And this matchup for Ohio State is very advantageous. I mean, I I really like how Ohio State matches up with with yeah. Alabama. Now, you never like having to face five first team All Americans on an offense, so that's that yeah. sucks. But but yeah. I, I like I like the uh, the chances that they can score with them, and I think that's what this is going to have to be. It's, I mean, you're not going to stop Alabama. You might slow them down and stop them a couple times, but this is going to have to be a prolific offensive game by Justin Fields, by Ohio State, and it's going to be a shootout. I mean, they they got to yeah. win fifty two forty nine, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, and, and and the truth is, and I saw this in the Notre Dame game is. There are a lot of freshmen running around that defense on Alabama. Oh who, yeah, who don't have this type of, 
you know, playoff final experience. You know, we know what Patrick Sertain is. I think he's the best corner I've seen all year, one of the best I've seen in the last few years, quite frankly, in terms of you just don't throw to his side of the ball, (laughs) the field. But, I mean, we have the other weapons. Ryan Day will move guys around away from him, right? right? And once you get outside of that, Notre Dame was able to move the ball. Florida was able to move the ball. You know, Ole Miss was able to move the ball against this defense, like you said, Zach. And none of them have the talent that we have on offense in terms no. of running yeah. and passing. No, uh, no. And, and we match up. If you look at our two teams, we're very similar. Our offensive side of the ball, yeah, we're not Devontae. You know, Chris Olave isn't Devontae Smith, Heisman Trophy winner, who, again, we predicted on this show. And no one wanted you to. Heard it here not, first. Now, heard it here now, first. now he's going to win. <laughs> what happened? That was you, I, right? I lost you guys. I know it shut down my screen, though. I was like, I don't even know where we're where we're at. Obviously, we don't have the 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 five five players that Alabama has, but all of our guys are probably equally as good, just not as heralded. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I it's very you're right, very similar teams. I think Alabama's more talented, but that's negligible. I mean, in games like this, both teams have a lot of talent. It's going to really come down to just who plays better and and who has a better plan and who executes better. I know that if rumors are true and Tyreek Smith and uh, and Tommy Togiai are going to be out with COVID, or now they're talking about they might push the game back and all this conversation. It it sounds like there's some question marks going into the game and losing. The, if those two are actually out, that'll be a huge loss on this defensive line because yeah. we need every single human being to be playing in this game. Yeah, we'll have to see how how all of it shapes out. But you know, frankly, I think the the big takeaway here is you know we're all anxious. <laughs> we have no idea what's going to happen and it's got to be a flawless execution especially on the offensive end we can pull that does. off i mean no hey you only take, you only have to be better than alabama one day you don't have to yeah. you don't have to be better than all year you got to be better than one day just for a few hours they just said, a couple hours they, they said this in 2015 too that we had no shot against this alabama team alabama yep. always has this type of talent always uh, and and we all we got to do is play our best game. And if we play our best game and they play their best game, it's going to come down to the end of the fourth quarter and who scores last. I honestly do believe that um, in this game. So we'll see. Uh, one question, one more question I had on the NFL front, Mac Jones, you know, we're hearing the Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence hype. Mac Jones, is he is he a top level NFL NFL prospect? Uh, I think he's a mid rounder, second, third rounder. I mean, he, he's a guy that you get him in the right system. Um, he could definitely be productive. Uh, he just, I don't, he doesn't have the flashy arm talent and, and some of the stuff that, that Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields provide. Um, but, but he's definitely, I mean, he's played as well as anyone in the country has through a season and a half. So that's hard to count him out. <laughs> he's just, he's just had the benefit of playing on an NFL team in college. Like that's, that helps a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Well, it's championship week. Yes, it is. I'm excited, excited to wrap this up. Heisman week, yes. I mean, I don't I don't think we'll see. I think we called this on Devontae Smith. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt. Yeah. That kid's going to win it. No surprises there. Pretty great to see a non-quarterback win it. 
Yeah, it's awesome. My first time since 91 that a receiver's won it since Desmond Howard. I mean, it's, yeah. Who was the last one? Was it Manti Teo, the last non-quarterback? No. Uh, to, well, no, because he, he didn't win it. Chase he Young won it. it. Oh. No, Chase Young went last year. Um, but no, there, there's only been one defensive player ever win it. And that Usually was, running back or quarterback. So. Yeah, it's yeah. always. Receiver's been the rare one. I mean, I think it's Desmond Howard. And then before that, you got to go way back, like Tim Brown or something like, like way back. <laughs> I mean, Charles Woodson was the last, like, but he was kind of like an all everything player. Yeah, he's all purpose. Wow. Yes, yeah, that was that was it's it's the thing that I that out when I watch Devonte Smith like Zach he can't weigh more than I do. No, he's tiny. <laughs> he's tiny. I mean, he's I, what I don't know what he is. They'll probably list him at one eighty five. He's got to be one seventy one. He's like that's gonna one, right? that not huge. No, I mean you know what that position unless you're asking him to block, who gives a shit? Yeah. Look at Deshaun Jackson. Deshaun Jackson's the size of my eight year old daughter. Like <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're explosive and dynamic. It, they get over it. Now, if you want to go play for Urban Meyer, yeah, no chance. You ain't blocking nobody and you ain't playing. Yeah. But if you go to the NFL, they don't care. Yep. Yeah, true. Looks like he's going to get reunited with Tua in Miami. He might. <laughs> Man, awesome, guys. Well, looking forward to watching Ohio State versus Alabama this and coming week. Predictions? Ooh, you were you were really on point with the Clemson one, V. Yeah. Good. It was a good call. I, I was nervous making it, but I figured I had to with Zach calling the Clemson win. I was like, <laughs> I got I to gotta do something to get our fans get our fans back. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, you want to start on this one again? I'm going, I'm going 52-49 Ohio State. All right. I think there's over 100 points scored. So I'm going to take the uh, optimistic route and uh, go with 40 40- 49-35 Ohio mm. State. And the reason I'm saying that is because last week, what surprised me was all of the physicality and the injuries. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see some injuries in the first half. And my guess is that it's going to impact the game meaningfully. But I'm calling mm-hmm. it in Ohio State's favor. Love it. I'm calling an overtime game. Ooh. Oh, shit. Ohio State pull, pulls it out in the second overtime, 62 to 55. On a trick play, two point conversion. <laughs> 100 to 93. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of points in this game. There's no way around you that. Know, There's no way. Watch, we're gonna we're gonna get to the game. It's gonna end like 12 to 7. It's gonna be one of those. <laughs> LSU, remember, remember the LSU Alabama national championship? What was it? Oh. Nine to three? That was nine to six or something. That was the most oh. game I've ever had to sit through. Oh man. Ever. Where are they playing it again? Is it in Texas? Miami. Miami. Miami? Beach. Yep. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully we're talking on we're talking next week about a Ohio State National Championship. Yeah. That For would sure. be excellent. And if if Ohio State wins, I will get my long-awaited Ohio tattoo. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Put it out there then. Put it out there. <laughs> right on your forehead? You if they know? lose, I'll probably get it anyway. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, they're going to win. So you're gonna- yes, sir. Awesome, right. guys. Been a good one. Let's, let's- yeah, I appreciate it, fellas. Thanks, Zach. All right. Show the Pilot Boys some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast.
Hey guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a pilot boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high-performance lifestyle brand that makes the Lasso Sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture wicking materials and built-in strike padding. So every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. All right, V. News and notes, dude. Let's get it. So today, just for our listeners, we're planning on trying something new with the format. I think this will be appreciated. And if not, just uh, tweet at V and tweet yeah. some nasty things. <laughs> <laughs> go after, go after Partha. Um, just not on. Uh, just not on TikTok because I don't want him to get any more followers on there. Dude, by the way, I think I want our. I think I want it's our. Not bet. over yet. It's supposed to be for, by the end. Oh, it's supposed to be the end of. Yeah, end dude, of twenty twenty. I don't know how many did you have at the start. At the start. At the start uh, of the contest. At the start of twenty twenty, I had zero. At the start of our contest, though. At the start of our contest. That's a tough question that may never have an answer, you know? Yeah. So I think we should work off the zero. All right. Let's, let's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, the best, the best headline I saw, dude, was a new Virginia law that caps insulin prices at $50 a month. And that started last Friday, I believe. The last Friday? Yeah. Last Friday or this coming Friday. Which is interesting to me. It's there's always like a lot of talk about you know how much regulation should there be in pharma and how much money do pharma companies really need to make to continue the pace of innovation. But I think this is a good thing, man. It's it's always good when there's these staple drugs that you know they should be more affordable for people. And obviously, there's this whole game that happens with insurance paying these ridiculous amounts. But you know, long story short, it's it's pretty awesome to see states moving in a direction to to help treat so many people in this country. What do you think about that? I mean, if, if you look at these pharma companies and the, the life cycle of drugs, right? Insulin has been a product that has been around for a long time. These drug companies have made billions of dollars off of it already at the outset. Um, and it's, it's a staple drug that people with diabetes need um, that should be provided and should be something that they're able to get regardless of whether what their what their what their job or their insurance benefits tell them we need to to keep people who have these illnesses uh alive and well so capping the prices seems like a fair thing at this point yeah i feel the same way but i think it's you know insulin is is a it's a band-aid and this is part of what i i'm frustrated by in our healthcare system is that we're very you know solve this symptom oriented we don't really focus on solving the root problems and there's a stat that just came out uh, so more than this is from um, the, the, the diabetes. I think it's like the diabetes group or foundation or something along those lines. But um, 73% of American adults are overweight or obese. So yeah. when you think about you know, drugs like insulin that help with diabetes, when you think about you know, cardiac arrest, all the different 
side effects of treating your body badly for a long period of time. The problem is not access to insulin. The problem happens 40 years before that when we encourage lifestyle habits that are genuinely really, really bad for people. And culturally in America, I think that is something that we have to solve. We definitely do. I mean, look, I, to be a, to be quite frank with this, the reason that we do don't we try to solve the symptoms and we try to fix the symptoms and address the symptoms versus solving the big picture issue, which is curing the illness, because there's just quite frankly too much money in these illnesses, right? Like yeah. you have a hospital infrastructure, you have insurance companies. These are all multi-billion-dollar institutions. If we just came up with cures for all of these illnesses versus just treating of the symptoms, then you see a huge economic impact, specifically in America, um, if that were to happen. You know, not saying that these people are so sinister that, you know, they're not trying to help and solve the health crises that we're facing in America. But that's just that's just the bottom line. We have an economy, a for-profit healthcare system that is built on these drugs continuing to be developed and people continuing to get ill, you know, and if that's yeah. stopped think about the economic impact. So I think that there are that some of these illnesses, and then you see what, how quickly they came up with this vaccine for coronavirus. Um, also the, the power and magnitude of our science, scientific community and the technology that's out there right now. I think that we could be solving a lot of these problems um, a lot sooner than we have been just, that's just my yeah. opinion. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And, and I think, you know, it's it's not that we would lose an industry if we were to change the approach we take to health in this country, but it would be redistributed in a meaningful way. It would go toward preventative health. It would go toward, you know, fitness and good diets and the major food companies that control what we eat, companies like Danon that feed us dairy, which, you know, really is not something we're intended to eat, right? Yeah. Like all of these different companies that have a lot of weight in our culture, in our political system. Uh, would lose a ton of money if if everybody got smart and got healthy. And if you're a listener to this podcast, it's you know it, it's not rocket science to take care of your body, and you don't need to be ripped. You don't need a six pack. That's not what health looks like. Health is literally move every day and treat the food you put into your body as medicine. And if you if you just change your frame, where it's like you know a walk. If you took a walk every day for 15, 30 minutes, and you could be on the phone during it, you can do whatever you want during your walk. And or you could stretch if you did that and you you actually thought about what you were putting into your body every day. It doesn't mean you can't have pizza. It doesn't mean you can't have unhealthy food. But just think about it, what you're putting into your body before you do it and live your life mindfully. We we would see a massive change in terms of the health of our population. Well, when you look at the cost of bad health, right, and bad health habits that they have in cardiovascular disease, number one killer in America. All of these things, high blood pressure, all of these things, as you said, for the most part are a result of poor diet and exercise um, choices. You know, there are there are genetic predispositions that obviously people do have as well. Um, but what I do think is that, and it's like you said, there's there are groups in this country that want to keep that from becoming a cultural norm. It's expensive, you know. 
to eat as healthy as you should a lot of times. If you want to eat healthier, it costs more money. I've never understood that. Why would you not want your population to be able to afford healthier foods so that you wouldn't have the greater cost down the line? So that's what makes you say, okay, this is the system that they want us to have. Yeah. You know, I, I, I feel that way, but at the same time, I don't feel that way because if you, if you're really going to eat clean, right, you would, you would drop meat immediately. That's cheaper. Your food's already cheaper because you took meat out of your diet and you replace that with healthy vegetables, which are not expensive at the supermarket. You replace that with, you know, thoughtful eating out. I mean, even if you go to Taco Bell now, they've, they've gone miles on their menu to make it cleaner, healthier. I had the vegetarian menu recently, the new one. So good. I'm a huge Taco Bell fan, by the way, for our listeners. So good. So cheap. Cheaper than having meat on their menu. And so it's, I think the options are there because you don't have to pull a 180 on your diet to eat healthy, right? Like you can still have all the things you're having, but a lot of the time it's as simple as portion control because the foods we eat that are unhealthy for us are addictive because of the salt that they have, the sugar that they have. It's, it's as easy as knowing how much you're eating in any given meal. Yeah. And it's easier said than done too, because the type of psychological branding, marketing, psychological manipulation that's happening to our society is also one that's challenging, right? Like it's hard to say, oh, I don't feel like eating a Big Mac today when you see an ad every time you turn on the TV for a Big Mac. Yeah. It looks pretty good, you know? Yeah. Um, And no one's perfect. um, And we make, we make decisions uh, that can can affect us negatively or positively. But I think as long I think a, a helpful way to look at this is to make more good choices than bad choices. You know, I eat Chick Fil A. Um, so do I. I love Chick Fil A. Yeah, and I eat oily foods. I eat. But I eat. The, I, this is this is my beef with it because no pun intended. Because it's not about making to your point it's not you know i don't even think you need a majority of healthy choices i think you need one per day i think you need one habit that you try to make like maybe for breakfast it's as simple as hey i'm gonna get some protein powder i'm gonna get some almond milk and i'm gonna mix that together and that will be my breakfast right It, it it's one habit over the course of a year will drastically change your life you don't have to stop having a big mac you don't have to stop having Chick-fil-A. You don't have to stop eating out. And this is like a, a problem that I have with how health and fitness is positioned today is that it seems unachievable because what you're, you know, the people who teach us that live these very difficult to replicate lifestyles. Like I'll be the first to tell you, you know, being in the health and fitness industry, I don't, I, I can't sustain that lifestyle to the degree no. I'd like to, but I also recognize that I'm a human being and I also like some things that aren't good for me. So I'm still going to do them. I'm just not going to do them three times a day. Yeah. And I think, I think you brought up a good point in terms of like what we see as kind of like, if you go on Instagram and, and you scroll, you see these fitness profiles of these people who are like in the 1% and that's all you see. And yeah. so it sets an unrealistic goal for, I hate to say the word average Joe, but the average person cannot focus and discipline their life. This is their lifestyle. This is yeah. what these people do. And so 
there's a standard that's starting to be set by what we see and digest and consume from this 1% of the population of this is what I need to be. And the truth is, they're not, most of them aren't even achieving the goals that they say they're achieving the way that they are. They're having cheap meals. They're falling off the wagon. You know, perfection is not a realistic goal. And I think, like you said, saying, okay, I'm going to change one habit. That one habit turns to two habits and you do more good than bad. That is the goal. Like you said, you don't have to have a six pack or 3% body fat to do that. But that's that's what people are being fed to be healthy. You have to look like these fitness models, and that's that's not true. You can be yeah. healthy and 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 have a ten percent body fat. You can, yeah, yeah, you can. And I think that the thing a lot of people miss too is that nobody out there is able to do more than you. So for the people who seem like they have their whole lives together, it's just it's just not the case. I mean, for the areas in which they're strong, they have the you know, same number of areas as you that that they're weak at. And so it's just so important to just hammer in that message that, you know, good health is achievable. You know what I mean? Looking good is achievable. Feeling good is achievable. And it's achievable with the same amount of effort it takes you to look at your phone in the morning. If instead of picking up your phone first thing, you were to just roll out of bed, get on the ground, do 10 squats, and then start your day. Just my goals are are binary. So it's not like, hey, I have to do this whole workout. My goal is move. That could be a walk. That could be a run. That could be a tough workout. That could be an easy workout. It could be a hike. It could be laying on the ground doing sit-ups. It could be stretching, right? But if I move every day, I know that my body is trained to crave that movement. So I'm going to move more in general. By the time I usually you know, start one thing, uh, the workout turns into a lot more than I meant it to because I'm genuinely having a good time and it feels good to move your body. But yep. it's, it's, it doesn't take more than that. It's not, it's not as difficult. It's just that the systems that we have placed around us, like the phone dinging with notifications, the alarm clock, you know, even the time we wake up compared to when our first thing for the day is and how crowded our mornings are from a time standpoint we set up our lives to essentially distract ourselves from doing the things that are, are genuinely good for us. Why do you think, see this thing stuff all sounds so simple, right? Why is it so difficult for people then? Why do well, you think it's such a challenge to, for most more, more of the population than not to not look at their phone first thing when they wake up to not turn on the TV um, as opposed to spending 10 minutes in the gym. Why do you think that it is? It, these things are simple. Like you said, simple changes can make a huge difference in all of our lives. But more people than not cannot make these decisions and overcome these these obstacles. Why is that? I, I think it's because in there's, there's a few reasons, right? Uh, the first thing is that you have to be mindful of the things that are consciously or I'd say subconsciously controlling you. So, you know, the first thing that I did in my self-improvement journey was I turned off every noti notification on my phone. So the only way my phone makes a noise is if you call me. No texts, no nothing. I don't even get the red bubbles. So that means my phone has no control over what I do. I choose when I interact with my phone and I choose what I do with it. What's the consequence? The consequence is it's harder to reach me. I'm not as responsive to my friends. I'm not as involved in my group texts. That's okay. I don't really care, you know? 
but you have to make those choices for yourself. If it's very important to you to be very engaged there, you have to look at the other areas of your life. Maybe when you're not on your cellular device, right? Like what are you doing with the rest of your life and how are, you know, different factors around you influencing you? So from the standpoint of working out, like one of the things that I always struggle with is the motivation to actually do a workout every day. That's why I move every day is one of my goals. It's so challenging for me to get the mental willpower to actually go to the gym. So I took away the go to the gym part of working out because I realized that that was stopping me from doing it. But in general, as humans, we see somebody who's really great at something. And in our minds, okay, so this this is my real take. I think everybody has an inflated ego. And I think that when you see somebody doing something really well, in your head, there's a little bit of jealousy because you're like, well, I, I want that to be me. Like, I want to be ripped. I want to look good. You know, I want to do what this guy's doing or this girl. So you go after it and you go after it in a way that's not sustainable without recognizing the years and years and years and years of commitment training practice that this person has put in to look that way and to, to you know, live that life. So if you drop the ego and you just acknowledge that this person can be an expert for you or an inspiration for you in what they've done, you can actually look at things objectively and start to find some smaller habits to go after. But if you set your goal day one to be the same as someone you know who's, who's become a master at something, that's stupid. Like If you were going to join a martial art, you wouldn't day one say, I can take out a black belt. You, know, you, would, yeah. you would take the time to actually work up to it. And same thing with health, same thing with success, same thing with with everything is it's a accumulation of very, very small, insignificant decisions over a long period of time. And when you move every single day, that leads years from now to you being ripped and healthy and looking good. And it doesn't happen month one, month six, month 12 even. It just takes time for you to get there, but it's sustainable and it becomes a part of your lifestyle. And that's that's the biggest thing that's like not talked about today with all the motivational coaches, all the people talking about things is I, I would consider it lifestyle engineering. Like, can you create decisions and habits around you that are easy, that don't require a lot of mental effort and put you in a situation you want to be in? And do you have the patience to wait to arrive at that future reality and appreciate the journey? Well, that is that is the biggest challenge we have in society right now is we live in culture of instant gratification. Whatever I need needs to be satisfied quickly. And health is something that is a long-term, multi-year goal if you're not living a healthy lifestyle and have don't already have the consistent habits that are developed from years and years of practice. And I think that that is, you know, when, I'm, when I asked the question, it was to get that answer, which was, how do you get untrain your mind from the habit of instant gratification? That is what draws you to your phone when it rings. You need to see what is happening instantly. That is what makes you when you were after you work out, look in the mirror and see if there's any change yeah. after one workout. Like this is actually something that's in people's minds, and it is what our culture drives. Yeah. How do you unwind? that culture of instant gratification seems to be the number one challenge that we face as a society. And it seems to be having very, very damaging effects. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, 
had this conversation with you quite a few times, V, and with many around me. But if you look at the course of human history, the the nature of a person, of a human being, 10,000 years ago, their brain, their physical attributes, everything is identical to a person now. So yeah. if we were to take you and place you as a baby 10,000 years ago and place a baby from then to now, there would be no difference in terms of that person's ability to grow. So everything that we're taught today is based on the environment around us. Our, our intrinsic characteristics as human beings are pretty locked in. So for all of the history that we know of humanity, and I'm talking, this is 8,000 years before, you know, before the beginning of biblic, biblical times, right? This, uh, this is a long time back. So those people who lived didn't have the technology we have. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have all of this. And what's really interesting to me is those things just didn't happen until recently. Like the Industrial Revolution and everything that we've done from a technological standpoint, is a, it's a very Western concept. But interestingly enough, humanity in general has not had the need for this kind of connection and instant gratification for a very long period of time. And part of that is, you know, tribes turning into bigger civilizations. But the other part of that is the, I would say, like the the continued, you know, disenfranchisement and unhappiness that started to seep into humanity in general. And so you have to ask yourself when you look at, you know, a lot of the things that we live with in modern society, there's this very popular, like, Yo, it's from the West. Like it's it's modern. It's better, and you know, not not a lot of the stuff that we've created is is actually better. Yeah, I mean, there are people who would argue against that, obviously, but I think you're you're right in terms of what you're saying. In terms of has it improved? Has it improved our efficiency? Has it improved us as a society? And there's more than enough evidence to show that it hasn't. It's actually created human beings who are less efficient, who are less self-sufficient, who are less healthy, um, who are more dependent on outside forces such as technology. Um, you know, their people don't develop their skills anymore. You know, basic, basic things like I, I don't know how many kids actually know how to change a tire these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but you know, but what it has done. I think for people who continue to understand the value of patience, hard work, learning, you can use those same resources that are kind of hindering people right now to give yourself a leg up. Because if you do want to learn how to change a tire, you actually care enough to look up that video on YouTube versus the funny video you want to see. You have a, a world of information, of knowledge that you can gain. It all comes down to how our minds are being trained. And I think yeah. most society is being trained to use this technology in a way that reduces their value as a human being and, and less people are now using it. But the people who are using it in the same way that you would have before technology and had to learn things before technology, but just use the technology as an aid, they're thriving and they're standing out in this yeah. society. So it's a very, very interesting uh, dilemma, I would say, um, with technology that we're facing. How do you, how do you, do they want, you know, I hate to say this, use the big brother. Do they want most people to just be inefficient and 
and useless beyond their data you know yeah yeah and you you know what else we on top of all of that is like the culture around social media that's propagated by you know those who you know are doing are doing well at it right and i think is ironic for me to say because we do a podcast but i would feel that the aim of this podcast is different because it's not geared we're not geared toward getting followers we don't we ideally it would be great to have a lot of people we can impact but this is 100% driven by quality of conversation and content and yep. you know whether it's one person or a million people or a billion people that care about the conversation that we're having i think for however many people that is it's it's meaningful hopefully you know if we're if we're doing a good job actually challenging some of these common ideas and helping people see things in different ways and helping ourselves see things in different ways then it should be interesting for people but uh when you look at you know that the you got to post this many times a day you got to build a following if you're not doing this you know you're you're falling behind that's the general rhetoric of the business community and you know i would i would push back strongly to say Am I falling behind? Like, if I don't use social media, does it really matter that much? At the end of the day, there's opportunities that can happen from social media. But for every person that becomes big off of social media, there's probably five or 10 that become big through, you know, doing it the old fashioned way, networking, meeting people and getting extremely, extremely good at their talent. And we talk about Russ a lot, V, because he's a, you know, really impressive artist. And I had a chance to read his book recently, which highly highly recommend fantastic book but he talks about making i think it was like nine albums before he had a song that actually you know really resonated and it took him five years and he said through project after project he wasn't getting the results and what really happened is he became a good producer and a good artist and a good singer and a good rapper Mm -hmm. by making all of that it's not like the Lil Nas X Old Town Road is a fleeting way to find success. It's never going to be there and it's never going to be attainable again if it goes away. It's very, you know, uh, ephemeral. It's my yeah. word of the day. But if you, if you genuinely go in with the desire to, to master a craft, if you genuinely go into a field, right, with that desire, today on social media, you're made to feel behind. You're made to feel like you're slow or that you're not successful enough. And that you just, that sucks, man. I think that sucks. Yeah. I mean, it's it reinforces. Uh, there's, there's just so much that's driven into people's psychology that isn't controlled by their own minds. And that is one of the bigger issues that I have with social media. Like when I like I'm very comfortable with and, and I benefit from the fact that I was able to build up my personality and my network without social media. Right. Um, and when you have that security and I say, when you get to never get to the point where you're building your relationships strictly through social media, build real relationships with real people, have real yeah. conversations, network in a real way. And I think sometimes people get caught up. Sometimes they'll see like my follower account and suddenly that will create an evaluation of who I am in society and that happens to a lot of people. Oh, he's only getting 10 likes. Oh, he's only getting one comment. It's like that's being programmed into people to think that that's the only measure of value is yeah. follower count likes when a lot of that is artificial. You know, even amongst some of these celebrities, they've done audits. Yeah. A lot of that is artificial. 
these people that you think are getting millions of likes, they're probably getting 10,000 likes, you know, but that's what we're driven by. And sometimes you take it for granted. And that's why it's so important for you to assess and discover who you are and create your own value for yourself and not let the outside value perception of you determine what your value of yourself is yeah and and you know you just mentioned reading russ's book that's exactly what it is like some people are bothered by his outspokenness and kind of his kind of chip on on the shoulder but part of that comes from actually having to learn everything himself and developing everything himself and not watching people less talented than him succeed yes and also the other thing about it is it's a value and the music industry that he was able to gain from being independent. I think the machine and kind of the way that the whole system is set up is to be like not Lil Nas X. They don't want to spend the money, the studio time to have an artist in the studio creating nine albums and being able to release it. They don't want to make that type of investment. They want that one hit that goes multi-platinum, that, that goes crazy because yeah. it costs less to make. But the thing that a lot of the smart artists, independent artists realize is that that's your chances of success when you only make five songs a year versus your chances of success when you make 500 songs a year is much greater with the 500 song element. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and you may not ever have, you know, Russ doesn't have a mainstream radio hit still to this day. But he's making more money than a lot of these artists who have number one billboard hits because he's consistent. He keeps putting products out and he dictates his own work schedule and how he produces and releases music. And that's why I don't fall into this <coughs> this scarcity principle that I think that they put on us of, oh, less is more. No, more yeah. is more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I think a lot of people second guess themselves when they're putting out work too, right? It's like, I only want it to be perfect because they watch you know, Drake or they watch like you know, so, someone who, who's got a significant profile. And they're like, well, everything they put out is great. Yeah, it is. But for years, everything they put out was felt homemade. Yeah. The thing that people don't understand about Drake is he's the hardest working artist in music he listens to every genre globally he picks up on patterns before anyone else does he's he's on top of trends he's breaking artists and sounds and you know why that is is because he spends more time working yep um for for he he's sitting there in the studio not just recording but he's looking at music holistically and understanding the genre understanding the patterns understanding the market what's moving the needle and then also working to figure out how he, he can be a part of that. Drake's Drake's success is not just because he's so much more talented than everyone else. It's because he works harder and he absorbs and he works until he figures things out yeah. and he continues to, to stay on the cutting edge because if every Drake album sounded like his last album, we wouldn't even be talking about Drake anymore. You know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I think you're you're spot on, man. I mean, that process of the journey requires the abandonment of shame, right? Yeah. You have to accept that 
you might be embarrassed, but you can't feel embarrassed for putting something out because at the end of the day, there's a million people who might comment on it, but they didn't do it. They didn't take the risk. They didn't put themselves on the line. So do they have a right to even feel a way about what you said? You know what I mean? I think critics in general, fans, whatever, uh, it's great. But at the same time, it doesn't matter because your duty to the world is to be yourself. And you know, if yourself has flaws and you have, you know, different different ways that you want to change and grow, so be it. But I think when you create content, you shouldn't be creating it for others. Like there's definitely like a consumability standpoint, like component, right? Like you want your content to be easy to consume, which is, you know, like with this podcast, why we don't do five hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like who's going to sit through five hours, you know? Or maybe they will, but it's it, you have to think about making it easy for the other person to actually digest what you're saying or, or creating. But at the same time, you have to put it out for yourself because it's true to you, not because you're looking for a reaction from somebody else. And that's that's like a challenging mental block for people with success. And like with my social media, you know, I'm we I'm weird about my social media because I post stuff and then I forget I have even social media on my phone and then I disappear for days. But it's like when I put stuff up there. You know, and I I do it's been like a month since I post on Instagram. Can you believe that? I just like I just don't really use it anymore. Part of that, you know, part part of that is just that it's very difficult for me to post these video clips. It just takes forever. But you know, in bigger picture, it's like what I what I would hope is that when we create all these episodes as podcast or when we post all these clips on on my social or your social V, it's like boom, we built a library of all of the wisdom we could find, right? And if you're interested, then here you go. Here's this amazing library that we put together that we are really proud of that hopefully you'll get something out of. And you can read any book in this library. But for me to build this library and care if you came in and got something you wanted or not is pointless. Because at the end of the day, we're just accumulating, you know, different pieces of ourselves. It's overwhelming too, right? Like I think also that desire to to satisfy other people with the content, you know, that you're creating. A lot of creatives burn out. That's why you see the depression, you see the drug issues, you see these people's lives flame out a lot is because of that pressure. Their lives become a constant satisfaction of other people's needs and wants and desires versus what is it that they care about? What is it that they need? It's like the artists that succeed are the ones that maintain control of their of their craft and maintain control of what they release, you know. And and it, if you're able to do that, then you don't you see those people don't have as many of the same problems as some of these guys that that create a big hit and that pressure, you know, they care about what people say about them on social media. They care about their reactions, you know. At the, at a certain point. You know, the market is going to dictate whether or not you have something that's profitable, whether you have something that you can generate a living off of. Those things are all important metrics, but it's a lot harder to make a living off of something when you're not living honestly. Yeah. What you're making money off of. That goes for the corporate world. That goes for the creative world. If you're living in your truth, whether you're making this, I know this is said over and over again. 
by a lot of different people, whether you're making $30,000 a year or you're making $3 million a year. So long as you're making a living and you're able to pay your bills, if you are able to live with yourself and satisfy your own needs, then you're successful. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're on you know, the Forbes 30 under 30 list or you know, you're on the billboard charts you're living a successful life if you're if you're comfortable with what you're doing every single day and you're happy doing it. Hundred percent. The market for different, you know, different people is different. Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, to to you know piggyback on that, like if you can genuinely find a set of habits that makes you happy on a day to day basis, and you know takes care of you physically, mentally, spiritually, you're good. Yep. Do that for the rest of your life and you'll see things work out around you. And to the point that you're saying, V, about truth, you know, um, I feel I, I meet a lot of people who say, you know, I've been working on this. I think I have it. Why isn't it clicking for me? Why am I not making money? Why am I not, you know, X, Y, Z? It's like, well, if if 1% of you is doing this for the wrong reason, then 100% of you effectively is doing it for the wrong reason. Any portion of your psyche that's you know attached to a desire for wealth, attached to a desire for recognition, these things will inhibit you and prevent you from being read by the world. And you know my belief set runs a little bit more spiritual, but I really don't feel that social media indicators are are why people become successful. But it's really through the the pursuit of their own self and their truth. And you know I don't care. I don't care how honest you have been on you know a song or an essay or whatever but you'll know if you're being truthful or not by how other people react yeah if people don't connect you're not being honest enough and that's just that's just the nature of it and everyone's not going to connect if you're being honest and you're being truthful and you're being yourself and you're 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 displaying who your honest self is to the world everybody's not going to connect with yeah. you. People might not like you. People may not like you. People, not everyone's going to, because you are imprinting your individual identity on the universe. Remember that, right? And we you had, are, dude, I mean, we even had that one, that hater too. That was fun. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, if you are confident, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing any person in this world can say to me outside of maybe my parents. That can make me feel less about myself. But my, but my parents can destroy me, man. <laughs> Still can destroy me mentally. <laughs> but there are not that that comfort in yourself, you know. And not not saying I don't have days where I doubt myself, you know, or I have insecurities or issues. But it's there's nothing somebody on social media can say to me uh, or you. I know that's true for you too. That's going to make me think less of what I'm doing or trying to do. I'm doing it because I love doing it. So if you hate it, then sorry, just tune out. Like yeah. I don't, I don't control whether you listen to it or not. If you, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> you consistently. That's the thing I don't understand yeah. about haters. When I see them on Instagram, on people's pages, like why would you go on someone's page <laughs> that you don't like? to talk about why you don't like them. Why are you making that investment in energy? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent, dude. It's like, it's, it's such an interesting phenomenon, just the concept of hate, because it's so driven by love 
and it's also driven by insecurity at the same time. Yeah. And it's like a unique combination of like passion and pain that like results in them throwing a bunch of stuff at you, right? Yeah. And it's like, I okay, I see you, but uh, you know, I I don't really like that's a messy that's a messy energy you're throwing at me, right? Like yeah. I'm just gonna step out of the way, let that float on. And just continue continue my day of fun things that I get to do. And what's what does what does what I also don't understand? There are people who say I address all my haters, and I just want to wonder, KD. My, yeah, <laughs> like what what do you gain from addressing mm-hmm. your hate? I just it's a it's not. I understand that everybody's different, but that's the question that I have. What 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 is there to be gained from that that exercise? Dude, I, you know, the other part of it that makes it complicated, too, is like there's there's full time jobs in society of people that just talk shit about other people. Like yeah. we see it in sports so much and politics. Like, let's not even talk about politics. I mean, there are so many people making money by just talking shit. That is the world we live in. That, yeah. People, they're like they get frustrated, like people get frustrated and people like Skip Bayless. And I'm like, do you realize Skip Bayless is a character that is yeah. that's. He's a character that they crafted knowing that this was going to get people riled up. Someone was trying to talk to me about Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather, and they were upset about the fight. Yeah. I was like, that's the point. Yeah. That's the, the your emotional reaction is why they're doing this, because you're going to watch it. You're going to give them money. And so are so many other people that feel the same way as you, because they are rooting against Logan. And they're probably going to have like a, you know, normal boxing match like floyd does where it yeah, goes goes the length you know what i mean unless he decides to you know really put it to him and there really are people who hate floyd mayweather so much they're ju- they're just hoping that logan paul lands a, a shot and embarrasses embarrass him there's there are a lot of people who who can't stand his belief in himself to the point that they just want to see someone knock this guy out so bad yeah. You're gonna pay to see it. And it's not yeah. going to happen. Yeah. That's the desperation. Yeah. And I don't understand why it is, but you know, ask yourself, you know, is is there more value in you continuing to be irritated at these people? Or is it better off for you to 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 know the game that's being played and disconnect yourself emotionally from it? Yeah. You know? Yeah, and and to remember, too, I mean, it's it's more productive to build yourself up than to tear somebody else down. You know, yeah. it's yeah. a lot more productive and it's a lot more useful. Well, we live in an you you pointed out at the top of this conversation that we live in a very unproductive society, and it seems like people would rather invest their time um, in negative feedback more than anything. That's what you see. That's what's popular. That's what's generating money. That's what's in the entertainment reality shows, all this stuff that we see, a lot of it is in reinforcing negativity, but that's what we love as a society. And we just have to, to own it, you know? Yeah. And you know, I mean, as, as we look at politics, I'm starting to become more and more of a fan of anything that challenges like the current world order. Like anything that causes people to question why we do things and the way that we do them, I, I'm loving it because it's it's leading to this massive spiritual <laughs> renaissance full of people who you know, want to get better, want to grow more, want to see the world differently, want to be happier. It's leading to a complete shift in American values in a way that you know I, I haven't seen 
in my lifetime, which, you know, isn't very long relative, but still, it's amazing to see so many people starting to ask that question, what makes me happy and how can I find that? I don't give a, I don't give a damn about what society wants me to do, but what do I want to do? And that only happens when, you know, you get a lunatic like Trump in the White House that causes people to say, wait, wait a second. Like all of these things that we were born into are malleable. All the rules can be changed. Like we don't have to live, live, you know, the same way. We can start to challenge like how are things built, you know, and the conversation should go both ways and everybody should have an opinion and think about it. But people are actually having the conversation now. Yeah. I mean, once you realize that politics is a game, that's that's a rigged game and it's fixed between these two political parties where they're, you know, all they're doing is fighting for the, to maintain their power um, and that they're the, the days of ruling for society and ruling for the people. That's that's not here. That's gone. That's you know, that that's actually power is the biggest surprise of my life. Like as a kid, I didn't think power was going to be something that I would have to worry about people caring about as an adult. Yeah. I mean, look, this is what these people care about more than anything else is their small amount of power and ability to dictate the rules. Like if you really think that either of these parties really care about the people, then you've made your first mistake in terms of becoming a successful part of society. You can't depend on anyone, you know, and you definitely can't depend on the political powers that be. And that's been shown throughout history to help make your life better. That's not going to happen. They are there for their own purposes. And whatever benefit that you do get is a result of whatever it is that helps them with whatever their goals are. It's a very, it may seem like a cynical way to look at things. It's just a real way to look at things human beings in power care about power. And this isn't socialism. This is capitalism. This isn't just one way of looking at things. So, you know, stop depending on those people because you're going to be angry and upset. Figure out how you can work within the rules that they set to create a successful life for you and your family. Yeah. You know, power, what an interesting word. I've had a personal confrontation with power recently where I've, I've recently hired several executives to my team. So my role has changed drastically and the amount that I'm responsible for is, is very different. You know, the amount of decision-making authority I have is still the same, but I've let go of a lot of my decision-making responsibility. And in effect, I noticed it I noticed like a like an insecurity in me like well if I make these decisions yeah they're probably the best for the company but am I not you know letting go of everything that's unique that I bring to the table like what worth do I still have to the company right and in that moment I I like thankful I'm so thankful that I meditate I took that moment I was like pause why do I feel that way? And I realized it was due to essentially power, right? Like, do I have the power to control what happens to me? And to your point, no, none of us do. We have the power to control how we react to what happens to us. Nothing else. 
Yeah, that that's important to recognize. It's important to remember that well, you don't you don't control the world, nor will you ever. You don't control the universe. You can't even control other people. You can convince other people to do things, but it's temporary. That illusion will break at some point. So what anyone can try and do is try to understand that the majority of people in this world genuinely want to make it a better place. And if you lead with trust and you lead with, you know, true connection, then power's not necessary to get somewhere because you have so many more people all driving in the same direction. But, you know, power is is something that is used by the weak and the insecure as a method of maintaining control when they have, you know, no real ability to say to themselves, hey, you know, maybe maybe I don't really control the world. Yeah. That's exactly true because the thing that I always ask is if you take away most of these politicians' power as a politician, what do they have? Yeah. What can Nothing. they mean? You know? Um, so of course, you know, and, and you talked about the larger structure kind of being in that position. It is to make us not realize that we do have self-control. Like yeah. that belief that somebody else is dictating our lives is the first mistake that we make, you know, yeah. give people that type of power and control to say, Hey, if they don't cut us this $2,000 stimulus check, we may not survive, you know, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, giving them that type of control over our lives is something we don't realize we're doing willingly, you know? Um, and, and like you said, power is how you, how you framed it. Power is a tool of insecure. Um, but the thing that I find very challenging, and I'm sure you found, um, even in hiring your executives and building a team, is managing egos. Yeah. Right? Um, and I don't think people really understand that sometimes their disagreements to something sometimes aren't even based on legitimate disagreements, but based on their own ego needing to have the final word or yep. needing to have input and needing the credit for something happening versus someone else getting the credit. Those, those dynamics in corporate culture and that's what tears everything down. That's why yep. break apart in music. That's why corporations disband and business partnerships end is because people's egos get in the way. Yeah. A hundred percent, man. A hundred percent that, you know, you can't ever control anyone else either. Right. So you have to just be mindful of what ego is existing in a person and you just have to understand how to help people you know how to navigate that how to help guide people when they're struggling with that and the same you know people help you we all have ego issues we're not aware of and yeah we have people around us that are able to guide us yeah i think that's you know, that's Pick, picking your circle is the most critical thing you can do yeah in life and understanding what your needs are and, and who is going to be supportive of of who you are as a person and who's going to challenge you when you need to be challenged. Cause I think a lot of people um, who find success end up surrounding themselves with people who are yes men um, yeah. or yes woman, whatever, however you want to put it. And that's when you start to decline, your success starts to decline is when you surround yourself with people who don't challenge you anymore. Yeah. And you know, on that note, I think there's, there's two situations, right? If you already have success and you're building a crew, that's a more nuanced answer to like how to do that. If that's the case and you're listening, 
and you, you want to talk to us, DM us. Seriously. And we'll hop on the phone and talk about what you're going through. Yeah. And then on the flip, if you're on the on the come up and you want to you want to talk about how to, you know, structure again, you you guys you guys can DM us anytime and, you know, talk to us about stuff. We we all we're, we're both very responsive on that front. Um, but it's I, I just like desperately feel that if you find people that know you and challenge you to be your true self at all times, then you have an infrastructure to to attain and to to really build whatever you want. But the challenge is that those people around you, they have to follow one one rule that you also have to follow with them which is you never discourage each other. No matter how stupid the idea, you always find a way to be supportive of it. You can voice your concerns, but every argument, every conversation has to end with, even though I disagree, if this is what you want to do, I'm in. Yep. Yep. That's, that's what it takes. Yeah, don't, don't force your, you know, and we talked about this last week, um, don't force your thoughts on what is right on other people. You know, I've learned that, um, and everyone learns this lesson because we all kind of think that we know more than we do. And we have to go through that process of humbling ourselves, but what's right for you, like you've said many times, may not be right for the other person. And also you have to let people go through their own growth cycle yeah, and learn lessons their own way. People don't learn the same way. The lesson, even if I've already learned a lesson, if I'm trying to imprint that on someone that lesson on someone else my process of learning that lesson is different than that person's so even if you are right it's probably not right for that person at that time to hear that and digest it so don't yep. focus it on them you know absolutely well i think <laughs> on that note we're at that point ready to wrap up this news and notes a, a little different but i think uh hopefully more valuable than uh than the regular style. And uh, I think what's nice is we rounded out on a topic V of you know, the theme of this podcast, which is be yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Be you. And ultimately, if you can sit down and have that conversation with yourself, who am I? What do I care about? What am I passionate about? What are my values? You know, And you do your best to live by those values every single day you will find a level of success you never anticipated was possible. But it just requires that focused, consistent dedication. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. It looks like it comes to the end of our segment today. Always remember, we're moving into 2021 now. Um, Always remember, be you. You was fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on now.